Please pray with me this morning. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being together as your people in this place this morning. I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I hope that you all enjoyed your Christmas celebrations. I hope you had a a good Christmas day. I hope you all got what you wanted in your stocking and under your tree. You know, we're still in the Christmas season. As many of you know, Christmas begins on December 25th, the day that we traditionally celebrate as Christmas, and it runs through January 5th. January 6th marks the beginning of Epiphany. And thus we have the 12 days of Christmas from December 25th to January 5th, from which we get the popular Christmas song, 12 Days of Christmas, featuring, among other things, a partridge and a pear tree. Today, by the way, is the sixth day of Christmas. And from the completely irrelevant facts department, this is the day that the young maiden's true love gave her six geese a-laying a gift I'm sure all of you ladies would be delighted to receive. You know, in less than 48 hours, on the eighth day of Christmas to be exact, we will enter a new year, 2008. Dennis Kinlaw, in his devotional book, This Day with the Master, says the new year brings hope. As we look into the year that opens before us, we would like to think that it could be better than the one behind us. That yearning for something better is a gift from God and a promise that the hope can be realized. Is that where you are this morning? Are you looking forward to the new year with hope and expectation, with confidence? Or are you, frankly, dreading? the new year, expecting to be disappointed. My guess is that in this sanctuary, there are some who are truly looking forward to 2008, or looking forward to the new year and all that it holds. And there are many who are not. Like it or not, we each bring with us into the new year all of our myriad fears and doubts, all of our unresolved questions from the past. We all have things in our lives that concern us, burden us. Why this particular situation, Lord? Why this particular pain? Why this joy given to me and not to others? Why did I prosper so greatly while others did not? Why this particular failure? Why do I find my work so frustrating? Why does my body ache so much? Why this broken relationship? Why can't my friends understand all that I've been going through? Why? 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 We all have questions that we bring with us from the past as we enter the new year. We all bring with us into the future our past memories, our past experiences, the remembrance of our past sins, our our joys, our pains. Our past lives. And while some of you here this morning have your eyes on the horizon, 
Some of you are looking forward to the future with hope and anticipation. Some of you, perhaps many of you, have long since lost that sense of anticipation and hope that supposedly comes with the dawning of a new year. You've been through enough years to know that that some things never seem to change and, and lots of things only seem to get worse. You're too realistic to expect much from another year. For you, it'll just be more of the same. Another year, another, another day, day in, day out. More of the same. We all inevitably see the, the future through the lens of our past. It's just part of being time-bound creatures. And for some of you, perhaps the, the past has defined you enough that you simply don't look forward to the future. You've come to expect disappointment. I read a story this week about a woman who had never cooked a Christmas meal. So she called her husband and son into the room and she, and she sat him down and she told him that she was going to prepare her first Christmas meal and she didn't want any comments from them. She said she was going to make the meal and they were going to sit down and eat it and if it wasn't any good, then without comment, they would all get up from the table, they would put on their coats and their hats and their scarves and they would go down to the hotel and have lunch there. So her husband and son, without comment, nodded and left the room while she began to prepare the meal. Well, the time came for them to eat, and so she called them to the table. And, and when she came into the room carrying the food, she looked up and, much to her surprise, noticed that her husband and son were both seated in their places, wearing their coat and their hat and their scarves. Her husband and son were expecting the worst. What about us? What do we expect as we, as we prepare for 2008? Are you hopeful about the future or are you expecting the worst? You know, for some of you, the, the past represents the best days of your lives now gone by. The glory days are long gone and, and maybe your life seems empty now. If only life today could be as fulfilling as it was back then. But those days are gone, and now life is pretty much drudgery. And so your goal is just to endure, to get by until you die or until Jesus comes, whichever happens first. For others of you, the past represents immense pain and sorrow. You've had more than your fair share of heartache and misery. God didn't seem to answer your prayers then, so why keep hoping and praying? That he'll answer them now. Why should this next year be any different? You may feel angry that God has been so silent in your life. You may even be wondering if God has abandoned you. Others of you may feel like you've just blown it so many times in the past that, that surely God must be disappointed in you. And, and since you don't seem to be able to overcome your sins and your failures and your mistakes... The only thing that tomorrow promises to hold for you is more guilt, more shame. And so I think that there are a lot of us in the sanctuary today. There are a lot of us here this morning who would say that, that yes, ultimately, our hope is in Christ. And someday, maybe when we get to heaven, then things will be good. But tomorrow, 
The coming year, not much to look forward to there. Which inevitably raises questions in our hearts and minds about the nature and character of God. We've all asked these questions at one time or another. Does God care about me? Is he able to help me? Does he want to help me? Because you see, when our lives are full of questions and fears and doubts, it's easy for us to start thinking that either God is unable to help us or he just doesn't want to help us. That's somewhat of the situation that we find in the passage in Isaiah 43 this morning. Because Israel and Judah were so incredibly prone to idol worship and rebellion against the Lord, the Lord took drastic measures to get their attention back on him. He allowed them to be defeated by the Babylonians and sent into exile, away from their land and Jerusalem and and everything precious to them. Isaiah writes several years before the nation of Judah falls to the Babylonians and the Israelites go into exile. But he foresees the exile and its consequences for the nation. And he writes to give them hope so that when the exile happens and they're forced to face the worst disaster that they've ever known as a nation, they will have answers for their deepest questions and fears and doubts. Why didn't God deliver us from Babylon like he delivered us from Assyria and from Egypt before that? Is God still in control? Can he be trusted? Has God given up on us? Does he really care about us? Or has he forsaken us? You know, except for that part about being delivered from Babylon and Assyria, these are the same questions that we so often ask, aren't they? If our questions are different, it's because the circumstances of our bondage, our exile, are different. We ask questions more along the lines of, why didn't God deliver me from cancer like he delivered that person? Why does my loved one have to suffer? Why am I stuck in a dead-end job? Why is my marriage so difficult? Those are the kinds of questions that, that, that we tend to ask. But at the core, we're all asking the same questions. Does God care about me? Is he able to help me? Does he want to help me? Which is why it's such good news for us that here in Isaiah 43, God speaks clearly to the heart of our questions, our doubts, and our fears. In this passage, we hear his voice in no uncertain terms. I am your redeemer, your creator, your king. I am the Lord of all history. I'm the one who powerfully delivered my people from slavery in Egypt. I alone I'm able to redeem you, to save you, to deliver you from your bondage. Did you notice how many times in this chapter God reiterates and states explicitly who he is? I find that fascinating. Verses 3, 11, and 15 are just a few examples. Verse three, in verse 3, he says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 11, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Why does God state His identity so often? 
I think it's because in the midst of their circumstances, the Israelites had begun to doubt the character of God. Just like we do sometimes, I'm afraid, when our circumstances blind us to his presence with us. His word is a constant reminder to us of who he is and of the power that he holds over all of the created order. Because he alone is God. He alone is the Savior. And not only that, but this chapter practically shouts God's love for us. I love you. You are my covenant people. You're precious to me. Those who oppress you will be held accountable to me. Verses 1 through 7 are more or less a beautiful love letter from God to his people. Note verse 4 especially. Because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you, I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. And we're reminded here that God is always working redemptively on our behalf. He says, I want to deliver you. Your situation is not beyond my control. I want to redeem you and give you abundant life. In verses 16 and 17, God once again identifies himself to his people. But this time he reminds them of the Exodus, how he brought them up out of Egypt with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. He does this not so much to call their attention to those events themselves, but rather to, demo, uh, but rather to the power and the love and the dependability the Lord himself demonstrated in those events. It's a reminder that their faith is not in these past events, but in the present God who does those kinds of things. You know what? This word is for us today too. We know God has worked in the past, but we need to frequently be reminded that that God is in control of all things in our world today. We need to be reminded that God loves us immensely and that, that he's working redemptively on our behalf. And then God gets to the heart of the matter in the passage here. Now that he's fully identified himself as Yahweh, the one who delivered them from Egypt, he gives this command, this word of instruction to his people in verse 18. Again, this is just as much a word for us today as it was for them then. The Lord says, do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Now, does God mean that that we should just forget the past altogether? Of course not. Throughout Scripture, we find many instances of God calling his people to remember his saving acts on their behalf throughout history. So what is he saying here? Basically, he's saying, I love you. I'm for you. And I'm working for your good, for your redemption. But don't put me in a box. I'm not an idol, you see. I'm not doomed to do the same things over and over and over again. I'm your creator. I don't have to work the same way every time. And I don't always work the way that you would like me to. 
He's saying, I'm in the business of creating and redeeming and restoring. I love doing new things. I delight in accomplishing my purposes in new ways. The scriptures give us strong evidence of this truth. With Noah, God made a way with an ark. With Abraham, it was the miracle birth of Isaac. With Joseph, it was favor and position with Pharaoh in Egypt. With Moses, it was crossing through the sea on dry ground. With David, it was with a slingshot. With Jehoshaphat, it was with an army of choir voices. And with these exiles, God used Persia to defeat their captors and return them to Jerusalem. You get the point. God isn't limited to our ideas about how he should work. God can't be confined to a box. He works in new ways. The ultimate evidence of which is the incarnation. God did indeed do a new thing in Christ. He produced evidence far surpassing the Exodus that he is the Savior, the only Savior of the world. He gave his son Jesus as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. He gave Jesus over to death on a cross. He raised Jesus from the dead and he gave us his spirit to help us live for him. And the rest of the New Testament picks up on the new things God is doing in and among his people. First Peter talks about a new birth. Romans tells of our new life in Christ. Second Corinthians declares us new creations. Ephesians discusses a new self and a new attitude. Hebrews speaks of a new and living way. And Revelation points us toward a new heaven and a new earth. God is a God of new things. He is constantly renewing, restoring, redeeming his creation, including you and me. Dennis Kinlaw affirms this. He says, God is the God who wants to make all things new. And his presence can be recognized by the element of radical promise that confronts us when we come to know him. With God comes the word that the future can be better than the present. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know what wilderness or desert you may be in. But this word of God is for every one of us this morning. I will make a way. Expect the unexpected. Watch and be amazed because I'm still on the throne. Pay attention because I'm working redemptively in your life right now. Keep your eyes and ears open because I'm at work among you, doing new things in your midst. Does God care about me? Absolutely. Is he able to help me? Without a doubt. Does he want to help me? more than anything. And so the question for each one of us this morning is simply this. Will we trust him? Do we believe that the Lord is who he says he is, that he is in fact in control of the universe and every aspect of our lives? Do we believe him when he declares his immense love for us? Do we believe that he's able to make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, that he's able to make a way for us? 
Will we trust him when one of our loved ones becomes ill in 2008? Will we trust God when things in the workplace don't work out the way we want them to? Will we trust God when a friend betrays us? Will we trust him when a loved one is called home? Will we trust God when our circumstances don't seem favorable? With all of our questions and doubts and fears, will we trust him? Because God is faithful, dependable, and trustworthy, because he loves us so deeply and works in new and amazing ways, we can set our faces toward the future with hope and expectation. Does that mean that everything in our lives will suddenly be okay? Does that mean that our troubles will suddenly all go away? Not at all. But trusting God, knowing that we're firmly in the hands of the Lord, our Creator and Redeemer, the only Savior of mankind, will certainly affect how we view our lives and our circumstances. About a week before the terrorist attacks of September 11th, I saw a bumper sticker I'd never seen before. It was simply six letters put together to form the word Wigiat, W-I-G-I-A-T. I wouldn't have had a clue what it stood for, except that just a couple of days before I saw it, some of, the, some of my colleagues were discussing it. Wigiat is a question. It's an acronym. Simply, where is God in all this? Maybe some of you have asked that question at some point in the past. Maybe some of you are asking it right now. So often we tend to ask it through the lens of our pain, regret, and sorrow, not really expecting an answer, but rather as a way of, of stating that we feel abandoned by God. It's a way of stating our disappointment. And sometimes that's okay. God has big shoulders. He's able to handle our pain. But this passage invites us and challenges us to also ask the question at a much deeper level a level of hope and expectation, a level that confidently expects to see God working redemptively in the midst of whatever circumstance or situation we're encountering. Where is God in all this? I know he's with me. I know he loves me. And I know he's working redemptively on my behalf. I trust him. And I want to recognize his hand at work in my life. I want to see what new thing he's up to here. Like many of you currently do or have done with your young children, Mary and I make it a point to pray with our children before bed. Soon after we moved to Houghton, when Mackenzie was three or four, still in preschool, we would pray with her and uh, she would give us hugs and kisses and then I would, uh, I would proceed to tuck her into bed at night. And for a while, every night, just before I would turn out her light, she would always look up at me and ask the same question. What's in the morning, Daddy? What's in the morning, Daddy? She was always eager for the next day to get here so she could see what fun and new things were in store for her. You know, I think that's a great picture of how God would have each one of us face the future that he has for us with hope and trust, and anticipation, knowing that God is the God of new things and that he is at work in our lives. What's in the morning, Daddy? 
Will you trust him? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so very much that you are indeed the God of new things. Lord, you know each of our lives. You know the circumstances that each one of us find ourselves in as we prepare to begin a new year, 2008. I thank you for the truth of your word, that you are on the throne of heaven, that you are in control, that you are our redeemer, our creator, our king. I thank you for the immensity of your love for us and for the fact that you desire to redeem us and that you are even now at work redemptively in each of our lives. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are doing in each of our lives. And we'll give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.